Should we go? Yes, I think we can go. Andy, many thanks for making the journey from Inverness all the way down to sunny Edinburgh. And here we are in the basement of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh um, on this beautiful sunny day to talk about you and your career. Because um, for many years I've admired from afar the many achievements that you've managed to get under your belt uh, in record time, actually, given um, uh, the fact that you started ophthalmology when? Just take us back to the beginning. Uh, 1988 was when I started in ophthalmology. 1988. So um, back then, and just looking all your achievements uh, how carefully did you plan your career in 1988 uh, well I was always very keen to be involved in development and my ideal situation was to be able to work overseas for four or five years and then get my dream job in mm. the highlands of Scotland and uh, remarkably I managed to do that so I've had a a wonderful career. It's been a, a great experience. And as time has gone on, I've been able to see that some of what happened in, in earlier times has actually been of benefit to what I'm trying to do now uh, in the latter stages of my career of developing, you know, sustainable eye services for the Highlands and for Scotland. Yeah. And, and that burning ambition to go overseas, where did that come from? Um, I think both my wife and I uh, grew up with experience of families working overseas. Mm. Um, I myself was born in Scotland, but my wife was born in India, and uh, she'd lived um, a good part of her life um, uh, and had her schooling in South India. So she was very keen um, that we would return somewhere, and we always thought it was going to end up being Africa, which is where the greatest need ophthalmologists uh, was at that time and really still is um, so back in the 90s the statistic was about one ophthalmologist per million in sub-saharan africa so we were kind of mentally preparing ourselves that it would probably be africa that we'd go to but it didn't work out that way and we ended up going to cambodia which was actually a much more fulfilling experience Mm, and, and so how did that detour from sub-Saharan Africa to Southeast Asia come about? Well, we uh, had applied to work for CBM, uh, an international development agency, um, otherwise known as Christian Blind Mission. Mm. And uh, they did suggest certain projects in, in Kenya and Nigeria. Um, but it was somebody else who suggested that actually there was a great need in Cambodia. And although we weren't being given very much detail about it, um, my wife wearing the Asia hat was saying, no, I think we ought to give this a second look. And the more we did look into the possibility of Cambodia, the more exciting it uh, turned out to be. Um, and it was really a, a, a pretty unique experience because um, we were working in what was a post-conflict situation. So all medical services had been pretty well destroyed uh, during the long period of first the uh, year zero policy of Pol Pot and then the subsequent wars. Uh, and so the, the country was 
pretty well flattened, uh, at least not infrastructure-wise, but in terms of educated people who are going to be able to rebuild the country. Sure. And, um, you know, these aren't easy places to work. Um, There's personal danger, professional challenges. Um, So did you approach it with some fear and trepidation? Um, Yeah, I I didn't know an awful lot about Cambodia, to be completely honest. I'd I'd seen the film The Killing Fields. I'd done a little bit of reading beforehand, and I still remember the day of flying into Phnom Penh and thinking, my goodness me, what on earth are you doing taking two young children and a wife into this dangerous country? Um, and yet, actually, we never really felt in any danger. Um, we were fortunate that uh, Phnom Penh was secure at that time. Uh, the first year, we would hear gunfire uh, pretty well every night, um, but you know, never did we feel at risk. And we were very fortunate that when... The coup did happen um, just a bit over a year after we'd been there. We thankfully were out of the country, so we missed that particular excitement. Wow. So fortune favours the brave, clearly. But looking back, um, if you were approached by uh, a trainee now who was wanting to do something similar, would you encourage them or would you maybe uh, be slightly hesitant knowing what you know now? No, I I mean, it was just the most fulfilling experience. Um, I suppose I'd taken advice uh, beforehand that I really ought to be uh, prepared, firstly, to make sure that I had a route back into the UK. So I was given pretty strong advice that it was important that I'd completed CCT before I went. And, and that was very, very sound advice. And the other way in which I was fortunate is that this was kind of the period when there was a transition from uh, Eki to FACO. Mm -hmm. And so thankfully I'd got FACO under my belt before I left um, and was able to pick it up despite the fact that I'd been away for for five years. Um, So I'd put in quite a bit of preparation in terms of going on courses about how you would design an eye care program for a country uh, and to which I'm completely indebted to the likes of Alan Foster and uh, Gordon Johnson who are very firm friends and who I have just the utmost admiration so they were my mentors Mm -hmm. Um, I managed to get a short um, scholarship to to go and work in Ghana um, in both in the the capital in Accra and then also at a small hospital up in the north. And that was a very useful experience, um, just learning how to cope in a very resource-poor environment. And that's where, at that stage, I I was kind of going a step back and learning how to do ICCE, which was something that I'd not been exposed to. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems incredible now to be talking about that because, you know, the world knows that you know, putting in a, an intraocular lens is essential for rehabilitation of sight. But at that stage, uh, it wasn't proven that, that that was a safe thing to do. And so people were s- still advocating ICCE and then uh, aphakic glasses. Yeah. And then after that, I was very fortunate in being, I think, probably the last senior registrar to have a post recognised at St. John in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And, and that also was an experience that was 
just transformative. Not not only the the fascination of living and and working in that particular part of the world, yeah. but also the full range of pathology. Um, the, there's a huge amount of consanguinity, particularly in the the Gazan population. Mm. So I saw the most unbelievable things, and I used to say that if I didn't see something fascinating coming mm. through the clinic, it was a bad day, um, mm-hmm. because every day there was something unusual. Sure, um, and so in. Your uh, discussion with a trainee who is asking you about advice as to whether or not to go overseas. Um, Given the training now, and you touched upon uh, ECCE and small incision cataract surgery to some degree, the the trainee now would not be familiar with uh, the manual technique. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that going to be a problem, or do you think FACO um, is going to supplant six and other manual cataract surgical techniques? I, I think there is almost certainly a place for uh, FACO in uh, the majority world, mm. uh, if only as part of a, a cost recovery scheme. And I've been very interested that, that I think the majority of development agencies would now advocate the training of FACO alongside uh, training in six. Um, because for the majority, I think it is um, much better for surgeons to be trained in appropriate techniques. Yeah. And there's a huge advantage to six, particularly for very dense um, cataracts, where I think you're less likely to cause damage to the endothelium. And also you have less risk of bad results, because when FACO goes wrong and you have dropped nuclei and you don't have the means of retrieval, uh, that, that can be pretty serious. So I've been very concerned um, when I visited some places where I see trainees um, of that nation. I'm not talking about international visitors, uh, but seeing people being taught FACO in an inappropriate setting um, where they're basically being let loose on poor people, which I think is morally reprehensible. Sure. And so, I mean, I think there's the same problem there that uh, a trainee coming from this country to practice on poor people elsewhere I think is is something you've got to be extremely careful about but as, as long as the, the same principles of training that we would accept as being normal and uh, essential in this country mm-hmm. as long as that is being applied in the in an alternative alternative setting I, I think that that is okay uh, not least because I think since COVID we've been seeing, um, regrettably, people in this country who are blind due to cataracts. And it's been a huge shock for me to see the full circle. Um, that mm. When I started in my training, occasionally you'd see people who were bilaterally blind with very dense cataracts. And, and I'm seeing it again now. And, um, you know, my, my thinking has, has completely changed and that I, I see cataract not only being a major problem in the majority world, but regrettably starting to see it as being a public health issue in this country too. Yeah, I'm sure it's come home to roost in that sense. Yeah. Um, and part of your remit in your overseas uh, trip was not only around service design um, in cataract surgery, but, but was it also teaching, training, education? And, um, in, is indeed. that a big part of it? Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, there's, I mean, this would be the other thing that I'd say in terms of advice to anybody thinking of um, working overseas is that there's there's always this slight tension between development and aid, mm. and if somebody was to go and you know take out fifty, sixty cataracts in a remote part of the world, um, well, that would classify as aid, and in terms of carbon footprint per cataract, uh, far worse than actually what we do in this country. I mean, unfortunately, a FACO in in the UK, in terms of its carbon, does not stack up as well as, say, a cesarean section or a FACO being conducted in India Mm. because we have so much waste associated with the surgery that we do. But if you're to multiply that by all the uh, the travel involved, um, you begin to question what is really going on. However, if there is appropriate skill transfer, then that is a different story. Um, because when I reflect back on my time in Cambodia, in one sense you could say that uh, it, on first viewing, looked like uh, neo uh, colonialism because there I was as a foreigner going in to establish something mm. in a country where the, the local people were not really that involved but it was a slightly unique situation and I'm glad to say that 25 years on there are no foreigners now providing a service in that country and it is uh, completely run by Cambodians mm-hmm. uh, whereas Unfortunately, when you know, I was privileged to be able to go back just before COVID uh, to visit the hospital where I, I worked. And it was just so remarkable to see the development that had taken place, and it was a much more sophisticated hospital. But was there the same degree of subsidy for really poor people? I, I'm not sure. But that's because the international tap had been kind of turned off because development agencies want to move away from aid and they, they will only give um, money to support development and uh, education. And I, I think that's right. And each country has got to work out how it is going to fund appropriately the services that the people need. Mm-hmm. And um, you touched on carbon footprint, and that's something that I know you're very passionate about. When did you start thinking about that were you in uh, Cambodia? Was that something that came up on your radar? Well, no. I, th- I mean, uh, you know, the times have changed, and I, I look back in horror at some of the occasions when um, I, I made huge journeys across the world. And I think there was one summer when I crossed crisscrossed between Europe and Cambodia three times within mm. uh, the space of about six weeks, and I just, you know, accepted at that time that that's what you've got to do. Whereas now, if I'm planning any trip, I'm I'm seriously thinking about, well, can the planet justify what I'm about mm. to do? And what's the answer? Uh, I'm, I'm certainly trying to restrict um, the amount of travel. Um, during COVID, uh, I was not able to go and visit um, friends and projects I was involved with in Indonesia. Mm. Um, and, you know, where I'm you know, take my hat off to the Indonesians, they're often far ahead of us in being able to work with technology and they had me contributing to conferences over the internet. They even had me uh, as an external examiner 
uh, for their graduating exams. Um, and, and that was a, a huge privilege that they invited me to do that. Ah, that sounds terrific. And uh, if you were to speak to your younger self, knowing what you know now, um, given the three locations, Cambodia, Indonesia, um, and to some degree, sub-Saharan Africa, would you have done anything differently? Would you have maybe rationalised what you were doing? Would you have approached your time there in a different way? Or would you have pretty much done what you did? Yeah, I, I don't think I've got any huge regrets. I mean, I'm sure I made mistakes. And I, I think that there is always a danger of seeing things from your own particular prejudice. And um, I'm sure that my younger self was probably a little bit more bombastic and perhaps even arrogant in thinking that I knew the answers to problems, whereas being aware of local culture is, is so important. Uh, and I do recall one meeting I had um, when the, the, there seemed to be the suggestion that, uh, that the son of one of the the local health officials would be sort of foisted on me as a trainee. And I, and I was getting extremely upset and I was at the point of, of getting very angry, which, which is not something you should do in, in Cambodian culture. And thankfully, um, you know, the Cambodian doctor who I respected greatly mm -hmm. uh, and who was senior to me, she, she kicked me under the table and, and, and told me to be quiet. And afterwards she said, don't worry, Everything will be okay. We'll sort things out, but in a different way. It's really important. You mustn't get angry. Yeah. So that that, that was an important lesson. Uh, but it, you know, I'm sure with with youthful in, enthusiasm, you you can get carried away. Uh, and I hope that as I've got older, I've realised the importance of listening to others and being aware that um, there are other ways of seeing round a problem and accepting. Local advice, I think, is always important. Sure. Um, so you got kicked under a table, but I, I kind of think you've still got that youthful enthusiasm, Andy, <laughs> because um, not content uh, with making a massive contribution in, in terms of global ophthalmology and your overseas um, commitments, uh, you then brought it home, as they say, because you took on lead roles in Inverness, you continued um, being as energetic and enthusiastic to do across a whole number of domains, not least Wales. <laughs> so from Indonesia to Wales, and I know that you were heavily involved in uh, looking at Welsh ophthalmology. Mm. How did that come about? Did they think you were Welsh? Um, <laughs> you have Welsh connections. No, well, no, that's the no, story there. No, none at all. Um, but... I suppose the reason that I had a, a kind of skill that I hope was useful to ophthalmology in Wales is that when I returned to Scotland in 2000, I, I did feel the loss of not being involved in eye care development. Mm. And so I, I did suggest to CBM that I'd be happy to carry on part-time work as a medical advisor to their projects in Asia. And so each year I was returning and looking at projects in a, a quite quite a variety of different countries. Mm. And so I developed this skill of being able to go in 
and make a very rapid assessment of what was going on in a particular hospital of just being able to pick up when things didn't seem quite right mm. um, and being able to just ask the right questions of different levels of staff, both medical, nursing, administrators. Um, and I suppose, you know, that was something that was transferable to uh, hospitals in the UK as well. And so I, I think people aware of what I'd done in Asia asked whether I'd be um, prepared to do that uh, for Wales. And it, I, it was a country I didn't know at all. Um, I had a, one or two friends that I'd known who worked there, but uh, no real knowledge. And uh, that, that was a great privilege. And it was nice to be able to make friendships with colleagues there. And I hope that... Um, something of what I said in the report there will be of benefit to the medical establishment and to the patients in Wales. And do you anticipate that change will come on the back of um, the report, the well, very comprehensive report? I, I, I mean, I, I hope so, but the, the deal was that, um, you know, it was a short-term involvement and that, um, you know, I was not to, to expect or um, be asked to give any further Opinion. It was very much a, a one-off snapshot of what is the situation in Wales and what would be your advice for the future, and, and so that that's what I did. Okay. And that um, you know when I left Cambodia as well, although that was a project very very dear to my heart, mm. I I did make a very firm decision that when when I left that I was not to interfere with how the project developed after I left. And so I, I, I did not uh, give advice from afar and just let uh, my successor take the project on. And I think that's really important to do that because I think um, sometimes people can hang around too long and um, mm. start to become resented rather than um, remembered fondly. Mm-hmm. Well, you certainly remembered fondly um, <laughs> from every, everyone I speak to. And then, of course... Um, Coming home to roost uh, in Inverness, um, you have um, a brand spanking new facility. Yes. Uh, so tell me about that. Has it been painful? Has it been <laughs> um, rewarding? Is that box ticked? Well, it's uh, something I've been striving for for over 20 years. Mm. Um, so not long after... Um, I arrived in the department in in Inverness. Um, we we were in a very very tiny department, and the great day came when we were given new facilities. Mm. And alas, I can still remember looking round and having had experience elsewhere. I I'm afraid I shook my head and I said, "Well, this is all very nice, but I predict within two or three years this is going to be too small." Mm-hmm. And regrettably, th- that did happen. The last few years have been extremely difficult as we just couldn't get all the work done in the in the space that we had. We were taking on more staff and, and employing people in a very uh, sensible way, taking on non-medical staff to be trained up to do tasks that were appropriate for them mm-hmm. uh, and to release us to do what only doctors should be doing. And yet often we wouldn't have the room uh, to, to make it work. And over the years, there were various projects um, devised to, to try and solve our problem. And at times, funding was given, but then it never seemed to come to fruition. 
and we were very fortunate recipients of a visit from uh, Carrie McEwen, mm. uh, who was doing a series of peer review visits, which must have been about six, seven years ago. And um, her conclusion was that the facilities we had were really impossible for us to provide safe and, and appropriate care for our patients. And so finally that was what was released, the uh, the blockage to get something uh, moving. And at the time what was suggested that we would have uh, just a cataract factory um, built mm. on the other side of the A9 on the uh, university campus. And we universally resisted that and said that this is actually not going to benefit us. We're going to have all the problems of split-site working with none of the benefits because it's not going to solve our ultimate problem, which is a very inappropriate space that's not designed uh, to manage patients for modern services. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we were able to persuade that, uh, yes, we needed um, a complete new build which would incorporate um, a treatment centre performing high-volume cataract surgery, but it would be comprehensive. And so that's what we've got, and it's very exciting. And at the opening, um, which was not that many months ago, I was able to see the architect again, because uh, he'd been very involved um, with us in the planning. Mm. And he said um, that he always says to people asking him about this project that he curated, he did not design our hospital because we, we spent two weeks with all the, the stakeholders going through a very lengthy process of thinking about the patient journey for every single way in which they, they would come to um, uh, have our services, whether it was macular, cataract, glaucoma, cornea. We, we plotted through absolutely every step that every patient would make and then made sure that the, the whole process, the whole flow through the building was going to be efficient. Um, and I met a patient socially uh, just a couple of days ago, and they were remarking what a lovely experience it is to come uh, to this lovely building mm. and how it doesn't feel like a hospital. But the really important thing for them was they said that what used to be a two-hour wait of everybody sitting looking rather glumly at each other has now been sped up and that, that the journey time has been halved and it's a pleasant experience, and that the staff seem to be happy. Uh, it's a good place for us to work. And, and I thought that was um, really the, the nicest uh, comment to, to hear from a patient. Sure, that's cherry on the cake um, mm. right there. So um, that flow through from uh, looking at patterns of working, uh, patient throughput, and um, surgical efficiency seems to have stemmed from... Um, both your overseas observations and desire to improve services and, and come through home. So that new facility that you have um, ha is a big box that's ticked. Uh, and I know that uh, you're thinking about the next phase of where you're going with your professional work and personal work. So I, it'd be remiss of me um, in the final moments of this podcast uh, not to mention uh, apiary <laughs> and all things be related because in a way when you when you started um, or even pre 
ophthalmology. Um, you uh, were a student at St Andrews. That's right. Yeah, I, I was never going to be a doctor. I was, I was very dismissive of uh, my colleagues at school who were going off to study medicine, and I was uh, very denigrating of them and said that they were not true scientists. So that's what I wanted to be. So I went off to study uh, zoology, mm-hmm. and in my final honours project. I did dissections of uh, fruit fly larvae. And interestingly, it was the eye antennal discs that I was working with in, in vitro. Um, and, uh, you know, that when, when I compare what I was doing then to microsurgery that I'm doing now, mm. what I'm doing now is almost like carpentry because that was really, really <laughs> fine <laughs> stuff. Um, so about a dozen years ago, I took up beekeeping because uh, mm. I was concerned about the plight of pollinators and that has been a very enjoyable hobby although I find I don't spend enough time doing it Um, but where things have come full circle is that just a few weeks ago I went on a course to learn how to um, um, select for queen rearing Um, and somebody was telling me about their concern about trying to re-establish the genetics of the native Scottish bee, and that that was going to involve artificial insemination. And I thought, well, just the, the perfect thing for a microsurgeon to do. So that is my plan for next year, to learn how to artily, artificially inseminate bees. Um, well, you heard it here first, listeners. This is going to be the, the, the next step. Uh, and actually, talking of genetics, it is interesting because both you and your brother are heavily invested in all things ophthalmology, um, and uh, David and Molly have uh, worked very closely uh, with us here at the University of Edinburgh in sporting scholarships. So uh, is there a, a dominant gene at play <laughs> between the two brothers, or, or how did that come about? Uh, well, a bit, um, I think it almost serendipitous. I, I clearly remember when uh, my brother sent me an email when I was working in Cambodia to inform me that he was... Uh, going to be working for a company called Allergan, mm. and he said, "Could you fill me in a little bit about what ophthalmology is about?" So um, I wrote a very tongue-in-cheek uh, little pamphlet for him called uh, "Ophthalmology for Dummies." <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, he'll be yeah, listening. Just, <laughs> I think. <he> did. <laughs> not not to suggest that he's a dummy in any way. Of course not. I mean that, that would be. <laughs> That uh, w- would be completely inappropriate <laughs> because he, of course, has been extremely successful in his career as well. Oh, fantastic! And, uh, yeah, yeah. and he's been, you know, supportive uh, of people at uh, short notice when I, I've needed to find um, travelling scholarships for people to get training. And, and unfortunately, in, in the development world, um, when you realise a need, you're, mm. you're usually told it's going to take uh, 12, 18 months to, to get that funding approved. And, of course, that's not the way things work. Right. And uh, there have been occasions when I saw individuals who urgently needed um, uh, a visit to Europe um, mm. to, to have training from Indonesia, and, and David and Molly very generously supported that. And even more recently, when um, a colleague alerted me of somebody who needed uh, support for uh, training that they wanted to do in Uganda, mm-hmm. um, a Tanzanian doctor, again, that they were very generous in, in supporting that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in terms of continuing the educational 
been the scholarships that are provided through um, uh, the Pike Foundation have been invaluable for a growing cohort of global ophthalmologists. Truly invaluable. But um, Andy, uh, I think uh, drawing this uh, conversation to a close, we could carry on all night. <laughs> but it's been an absolute delight and a pleasure. Um, and uh, just listening to some of the anecdotes and the motivations and the um, boxes, the enormous list of boxes that you've ticked throughout um, what has been a good number of years, but um, you've got um, many, many more years to contribute uh, to ophthalmology, uh, if not artificially inseminating bees, <laughs> which uh, we'll watch that space with great interest. But Andy, thank for, thanks very much for coming along and sharing your thoughts. It's been uh, fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much. <laughs>